Welcome into another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball. In this week's episode, we have Clint Hurdle on the podcast. Clint is somebody who has spent a, a lot of years playing, coaching, managing in professional baseball. He was the major league manager for the Colorado Rockies from 2002 to 2009, and then he was the manager for the Pittsburgh Pirates from 2011 to 2019, including the National League Manager of the Year in 2013. I just got off, just got done recording the episode um, with Clint, and I can tell you he gives so many great insights as a coach, um, as a former player. Uh, I, I took so many notes and, and have so many things going through my mind right now. So I think it's something if you're a coach out there, you're going to want to listen to this episode because he talks about how he went about dealing with certain types of players managing expectations even talks about you know writing lineups um, and then he he shares a, a really good Josh Hamilton story because Clint was the hitting coach for the Rocky or for the Rangers when Josh won the MVP award so he tells a really good story of, of Josh Hamilton too and how he was able to connect with Josh the last thing I'll say before we get into this episode if you enjoy this podcast if you en- enjoy listening to this episode past episodes, please share them on social media. Please tweet about it, post it on Facebook. That's what's going to allow this show to grow the way it has and the way it's going to continue to grow is going to be word of mouth more than anything else. So if you enjoy the show, share it. Thanks again. Here is now the interview with Clint Hurdle. This is the future. This is my time. I grind and shine. I put in the work and push the line. All right, now we welcome on to the podcast, Clint Hurdle. Clint, thanks for coming on today. Patrick, you're welcome. I look forward to our time together. So I I see that, you know, you are now like on social media a little bit more, uh, or really just at all, because I don't think you were before. What, more so Twitter specifically, or I guess now it's technically called X, which is weird to say, but why why get more active on social media now like what what what's kind of your thought process behind it like some of the stuff you've been putting out but just kind of curious to hear like what was your motivation for wanting to to start being more active on social media yeah i i just wasn't more active patrick i had not been active at all until actually march when i started uh being uh, engaged with x and with instagram um, my son, Christian, has just left for college. He's in his third, maybe fourth week at the Culinary Institute of America. And before he was heading out um, over the summer, we were talking about positivity, spreading messages, trying to uh, share life experiences or to be of help or support. I've been doing it for years, but I've been doing it through emails. I've been doing it through text messages. I have a daily email that goes out with a subscription list that's free, but I have about 7,000 people that you know partake of that. The text messaging I've been doing since I uh, was with the Rockies in 09, and I couldn't even tell you the, the amount of text and the lumping of the text that I put out or share. Um, and he just said, Dad, you know that's really sweet. <laughs> he said, you're reaching a lot of people. He said, but you need to jump into the 21st century because he goes, if you, get on, if you get on Twitter or X, he goes, you can reach 200,000. Um, you know, and he, and he gave me some warnings, you know, it can be the wild, wild west and be careful and don't be toxic and don't fight back. 
uh, you know, all really a lot of wisdom from an 18 year old. Um, and I thought I'd give it a shot um, just because I'm always trying to learn and evolve. And through the Instagram thing, you know, he explained to me, Instagram is what you're, what you're doing and, and X to Twitter is, is what you're thinking and just try and keep it in that context. So that's really Patrick, why I got started. That's, that's actually very good advice. What you're doing versus what you're thinking between the two different platforms. I like that. Um, what, what are your thoughts so far? I mean, what have you seen? I know it's not, you're more obviously in the baseball world for, you know, what you're putting out there and consuming probably from, um, a content standpoint like what, what have you seen are you happy with what you've seen or are you discouraged optimistic what do you what do you see well it you know i'm, I'm fortunate i mentioned my, my son christian but i also have like a caregiver that, that's actually with us alex ritz from pennsylvania she's been with her family 14 15 years and she oversees my daughter in a lot of categories we have a daughter maddie who's born with a, a birth defect and alex started off as a nanny and now she's become a caregiver but she's also one of the ones that encouraged me to get more involved and share family you know experiences as well for a lot of people out there that may have family challenges and need support so what i've seen is basically what i see in the world and it's what i see through the lens of everyday living you hunt good you find it you hunt bad you find it you want to fight you can get one you want to pick one you can definitely find somebody to find to fight back with you I try and stay away from the negativity. And that's what I found kind of interesting in our first exchange. You put out an exchange. I was just responding to it. I wasn't, it wasn't fist up. It wasn't Patrick. You don't know what you're talking about. I was just, I tried to explore my experiences that I'm just trying to be, I think the quote was in school. It wasn't old school versus new school or that. And it still amazes me how, you know, it's kind of like lighting a match um, and then putting it to a wick with a stick of dynamite at the end if you want to. I'm just, I might light the match and my son has encouraged me, if you light the match, that blow it out. Don't put it to the wick. You don't need to go there. And what I've seen is a lot of what's going on in the world. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of anger. And there are a lot of people just trying to share experience, strength, and hope. So, you know, I'm just trying to, I kind of set boundaries for the time limits that I'm on when I go on. And even though a lot of it has been baseball related, I've, you know, I'm sharing different thoughts that are more life related as well, because sports are conducive to life. You know, there's a lot of uh, commonalities you can draw from, but I'm looking to reach or just to be a part of a community outside of baseball as well, because, you know, I'm, I'm still involved in the game of baseball, but I'm involved in some other things in life that I think could, I need support in, or I can find support. Yeah. And I'm sure with, all of your experiences throughout, you know, your personal life and, you know, at home and then also throughout baseball, you have a lot you can offer too. Um, going back to what you were just saying about, you know, that those couple of tweets or, or whatnot, you're hundred percent right. Right. I mean, you, and that's kind of the problem where you have like someone like yourself who isn't necessarily like trying to start a fight or anything, but the problem is, is you have all these other people who ha have this, I would say like agenda, right? Like they are completely sold on, on their side of like hitting or whatever it is. And so at any point in time, if they can just jump on the back of somebody else who they think is on their side too, which, you know, maybe in this case was you, then that's what they do. And then they just flood it. And then it's just, it's not healthy, right? It's, it's not, it doesn't get the game anywhere. It doesn't move anybody in, in any type of direction. Um, it's just, like you said earlier, it's just picking fights, but 
I, I don't even want to spend any more time talking about those people. They're, they're not going to change. History repeats itself. Human behavior doesn't seem to, for some reason, change the majority of the time. But um, going back to that specific tweet, it was about that tweet was a, about two strike approach. And so I've, I know you're you've been a hitting coach and and a manager, a longtime manager. And I actually think you were on the same staff as. Um, when you were with Texas as my manager, Dave Anderson, I believe he was the third base coach of that, that, that team, a great guy. Um, but take me through like, what, what didn't you like about, not that you didn't like about it, but like, I think your, your response, I read it again this morning was that, that the um, approach and old, like the older type approach isn't necessarily, it was more in depth than what I had, I'd put out there. And I wanted to get your take on it because you're someone who, I mean, we haven't even gotten into yet, but you were on the cover of sports illustrated. Like you were one of the best hitting prospects of all time. Like you have a ton of experience in this game. So I want to hear what you have to say about, about it. Well, Dave Anderson was on that staff, and he's still a friend of mine to today. Wonderful baseball guy, but just as important, a really cool human being. Um, we interacted. Uh, we, you know, we haven't been in touch much lately, but we were staying in touch. I left. He left. We both landed different opportunities. I learned a lot from Dave uh, along infield play. I learned a lot watching Dave, you know, coach third base and some of the people that he worked for and played for was another avenue for me to kind of garner information from. And I think that's the, the wonderful thing about baseball is that through the connections we can make, we can learn outside our own community, our own box. Because um, I have found out the hard way that, you know what, the one way I learned, number one, that's what I learned. Maybe, and then I got another teacher that maybe helped me learn a different way. You connect those dots and before you know it, you know, if you have a tool belt, now you got four or five tools in which to address a problem or, or a challenge rather than just one because that's all you know. And, and I will say this, in a lot of cases, as the game has evolved and I've watched it evolve, I've been involved in the, you know, the evolution of the game and the pivoting from baseball, authentic, you know, old school for the term baseball versus the, the new school analytics. Um, in Pittsburgh, in around 11, we were starting to – actually, we were probably tied with Tampa Bay. We were neck and neck in the advancement of all analytics. We were probably at the top of the list. That was my first year in Pittsburgh. Not much experience in Colorado, a little experience in Texas. But the biggest gain of knowledge I got was when I was fired in Colorado and spent the summer working at the MLB Network and then watching all the interns come in with information – and all the different statistical, you know, equations and algorithms and analytics they were putting together for optics, for graphs, for sheets. And it kind of blew my mind. I'm thinking, holy cow, you know, this is where we're going. I can either get on board or I can get left in the dust. And all I've ever tried to do through the evolution of it is, is try and share experience, strength, and hope. As I said earlier, there are some things that I learned back in the day that are still very applicable for today. No doubt in my mind. But I've also learned a host of new ideas and thoughts that I never knew were relevant until five or six years ago, which help players, which help coaches, which have helped me understand better uh, the different nuances of the game. I want to be the guy that when I meet a player, first of all, I get to know them where they are physically, emotionally, professionally. And then I need to meet them there. And then I need to find a way to coach them up that works best for them not the default mechanism, the way I got coached. 
<laughs> or or what I learned from Charlie Lau or what I learned from Ted Klazuski. I can take you there. You know, I can Walt Riniak. I can go to a lot of iconic hitting coaches, but in some cases, a lot of what they're teaching, I don't think today's player is going to gravitate to. Not that it's wrong. It's just they don't know. Older coaches don't know what they don't know. The younger players, they don't know what they don't know. What they do know is the, the world they're living in now with the different measurements that are available to them. Um, I have learned a lot over the years. I do believe that in some cases we, we've gotten bigger, we've gotten stronger, we've gotten faster, we throw it harder, we spin it better. I think we've lost the feel to play the game in some areas. I think we've lost the feel to hit in some areas. I do feel, think we've lost the feel to pitch in some areas. Now, does that mean we're chasing all the wrong things? No. People are looking at the game differently than when I grew up. So I'm going to stop now and ask another question. I probably didn't even answer your first question. The hitting thing we, we can dig into, but I just want to make sure people understood. I'm not coming on to be spending time with you as a guru or a know-it-all. I'm coming on because we had an interaction, and I felt at the end of it, it didn't go the way I wanted. The biggest lesson I learned is if I have something I think is personal that I need to share, I'm just going to DM somebody rather than leave it out there in space for everybody. I had no idea the, the recoil, the reverb that was going to happen from our conversation and me responding to it. And then I just got out of it because I, I want to know more of that. And that's not, not the reason why. And when you reached out to me, as I shared with you, hey, this is what I'm thinking. I have no animosity. I'm not trying to pick a fight. So I thought the best you know, peace offering I could make was when you said, hey, you want to go on my podcast? I said, absolutely. Let, let's get on together and chat, get to, get to know each other a little bit better. Yeah, and I, I agree with you too. And that's something that I've I've learned to do the, the same exact same thing that you just said is like, you know, because I see stuff on social media all the time that A, I maybe I don't agree with from a baseball standpoint, or maybe I have more questions. And like at this point, I just DM the person because it's not worth, I mean, going down that rabbit hole of of what you know what happened to us anyway. But I do appreciate you you coming on and you, you know, you not being one of those people where it's like you just say something and then you just go you know, <laughs> run and hide. And then it's like, geez, like what, what's I, this doesn't get us anywhere. So um, and I and I do think too that um just hearing you talk, listening to you, listening to you, doing background. I mean, you're definitely not one of those people who, who is, you know, just obviously trying to pick a fight. I think I've, cause I've been following you pretty closely on your social media and you're putting out some really good stuff that has to do not just even with baseball, but you know, I mean, even, even stuff, you know, that comes to like, you know, just praying and, you know, religion and that type of stuff, you know, I, I like that stuff too. I think that's very important in this day and age because um, it's uh, something that's been, I don't know, kind of just overlooked. It seems a lot of times even online, but um, so that's kind of what, what I was coming at, but and going back to what you said about, um, you know, baseball and being overlooking certain things within baseball, I think you're you're right. Uh, one of the things that I had on, I don't know if you know the name, Bill Moziello, who's the head coach at Ohio State. He was a manager in, in professional baseball for uh, some time, but mostly his career has been in college. And that's one of the things he said, too, was he's like, you go and watch players now. And like from a physical standpoint, they're so much more talented, not so much more talented, but by and large, overall, they throw harder, can swing faster, all this. But the base running's not any better, right, than it was 20 years ago. If anything, it's probably worse, right? The fundamentals aren't better. And so 
some of the things I think have gotten better, but I think some of the other things have, have taken a step back because of, um, you know, maybe all the analytics and, and maybe some people like myself maybe are to blame for, uh, you know, overlooking those parts of the game and not putting out more content on on those, you know, on the base running and things like that that are aren't as sexy, but are definitely really, really important. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I do believe that we we prepare for our future through our past if we paid attention. And I can be the first one to tell you there's some things that I've not paid attention to in the past that caught up to me down the road. But my willingness to learn and my thirst for knowledge has never wavered since the time I was in high school. Um, my son and I have a term that we kicked around early on in his development. It, it's called be a, be a white belt, a white belt mentality, a lifelong learner. My son grew has grown up and he retired from baseball at the age of four, Patrick. And at the age of four, at the age of four, he's a man of his word. He never went back. He turned to karate, to tennis, and then to crew, rowing. And he finished his high school, you know, years with four years of rowing, starting in Pittsburgh and finishing up here down in, in Lakewood Ranch, Florida, out on the Manatee River. He still may row in college. And if he does, he'll row on the Hudson River up in New York. But the white belt mentality, he didn't have an affinity for baseball. So as I walked through his journey with him, you know, two things I never had the opportunity to do was second guess his coaches and overcoach my own son because he kept picking sports that I hadn't had any knowledge or any expertise in. So I just became the father that just cheered and listened and tried to learn, which was what I needed for my life as well, especially dealing with players. Um you know, I started off young as a manager, probably 44 years old, I think. And I ended up at 62 as a manager where I had guys in my clubhouse that could have been my grandson. So I do think we've we've lost our touch with the actual playing of the game. Um, I share with our players today, you know, we've got iPads, we've got iTunes, we've got iPhones, we've got iWatches. I said, you've got a big tablet ballpark every time you show up. It's called a scoreboard. How many of you, when you get to the game, spend more time still looking at a tablet than you do the tablet that's out there, the scoreboard? And they all raise their hand because they don't watch the scoreboard like they used to. We did because it's the only thing we had. Don't get me wrong. It's the only thing we had. But we understood the, the, the meaning of it. And to today's game, actually, we're reteaching our players how to read the scoreboard, how to learn from the scoreboard. So the scoreboard is really a big piece of information that will help you figure out what you need to do during the course of the game. Um. I do think there's been challenges. There are good programs out there in travel ball. There's good showcase programs. Uh, there's good high school programs and, and college baseball, all up different levels. But we have become a little specialized in some of the things we do and whether the parents are chasing or the kids are chasing, I don't know. I've watched both. But through chasing those limited opportunities where it's all about I'm on a team for two weeks or I'm at a showcase for four days, and to prepare for that, I've actually had players in our organization say they just worked on analytical measurements to go to the showcase because they knew there were certain teams, more than half the teams in baseball, the pro level, gravitate to that and hold that probably at a higher esteem than they do some of the old scouting routines and techniques used in the past. So launch angle became important. Exit velocity became important. Spin rates become important. Running time was still important, but it was different gauge. 
I do think that our players have lost the community of team at times. Because when I played on team, we played 30 games in high school. Then you're in Legion. You're playing with the same guys for 30 more through through summer. And if you go up three years together back in the day when we were in high school, you've been 150, 120, 150 games together, which is a lot of baseball, playing baseball. Now it's, you know, we're almost independent contractors. You know, they get rewarded for that. They get re recorded for meeting certain requirements. Um, and I think it's just sometimes we've dehumanized the game when we've gravitated to the heavy number side of it. And I do know it's still a game played by people. And there's human analytics involved as well as the, the statistical analytics or the numerical analytics of following. So that about five years ago, I just came up with the term because Pittsburgh, we kept blowing into it. We kept digging deeper and deeper. And I was respectful of the people in our organization to put our programs together. I learned from them. They helped grow me. And when I felt there was something that I could share with them, I would share it with them. I said, hey, there's something to be said about a dugout vibe. There's something to be said about looking to a player in the eyes when he walks in. You know, you're not going to be able to pull the fact that he had an argument with his wife or his kid's sick or his mom and dad are in the hospital. There's other things that we can just put into that big equation of who needs to play today. Where do they need to hit today? How many innings can this guy throw today that I've just tried to share? And that was the I got tired of the old school versus new school fight. And that's when I just came up with the term, you know what? Let's just put the gloves down and be in school. Yeah. Try and figure it out together and grow the game, as you mentioned earlier grow the game together that's my biggest that's my biggest desire right now is just help help whoever wants to help me grow the game together love that i love the in school i love the in school versus the old or new it's it's being in school and you, and that that's the value of of having people with experience in clubhouses and coaching is uh you know and someone like even like yourself you where you see the value in both but you have to you have to see see the value of the human element first right and those the players at their people first and and they're not computers and so like having that emotional intelligence where you know you can read body language you're looking for body language you're looking for you know interactions and and eye contact and things like that i think that's something that is um, that's huge that that should be coaching 101 um and it's it's not there's no real handbook on that they make you take, you know, a course on coaching before you actually started, which probably should. But going back to what you said about uh, the showcase and, and and it's not really a team element right now and you're 100% right. But what would what would be like if you could have your way, not your way, but what would be some pieces of advice knowing what you know about how it works now? what would be a piece of advice that you would give or you would like to see that you think could actually help change that? Or do you think it's going to change in it because it's such a business now that it's just going to be this way going forward. And we as coaches just have to, uh, you know, do the best we can because parents and players, they're going to go from showcase to showcase and team to team because they think it helps their exposure more. Well, the part, yeah, a lot of what you just said is true. And it's actually, there's certain parents that basically this they, they feel like they're the, the, the kids GM because there's a, there's a financial invest, investment. And, you know, I live close to IMG, the Academy here in, in Bradenton. I mean, what about that investment? They're paying 80, $90,000 a year to put their kids through high school each year to, for exposure. Yes. For academics as well. I believe in IMG. Trust me. I'm just saying 
there's certain parents that are j- chasing certain things and are driving this bus in some certain areas because I think they're, yes, they're trying to give their son or daughter the best opportunity to have some success in sport maybe um, or something else in life, but, but for this conversation for sport um, and how much of it's real, you know? And then I think it's always, we're all best served on whether, you know, where I go to buy groceries, where I have my car service, shop around and find out who's giving you the best, best value for your dollar. And I believe there are good programs out there. I mean, I know the people that have run Baseball Factory for years. I worked for them for years. I appreciate those people. I actually know the people that work Perfect Game, and I've had people have arguments and yell at me about Perfect Game. When I'm at Perfect Game events, I see the value. I see parents that have gone for years. I see players that have hung out with players. They've come up 13, 14, 15. I managed the PGA All-American Classic, you know, the game, the East-West game. I spend three or four days with those players, and I've done it for now four years. There are good programs, and there's many more. Those are just the ones that I've actually had boots on the ground and spent time with the people operating them, what they teach, what is being said. Um, so I, I look for the good narrative, the, the, the programs that are really out there to put the best possible opportunity for their kids. Exposure is number one, but not exposure at all costs, not exposure that could you know put them in a, in a harmful situation. Injury-wise, because I watch some of these kids when they compete and the showcases that I, I tell them at the end of the day, I usually, I get the opportunity to talk to the kids and the parents a couple different times. And I'll tell the kids, I'm looking to build a new app that I can put on my phone, which will show me the time it takes if you're a pitcher to throw a pitch and to whip your head around the scoreboard and see the track man on the driveline, see your numbers back on the scoreboard, left center field. I want to time that. Because <laughs> I, I tell them that, you know, the, we measure so many things. And, and initially, when I first got on X, one of the biggest firestorms that I got to be a part of was I kept reading about this. I kept reading about that. People were arguing. And I was just listening. And it was Driveline, Repsoto, Trackman, KVS. We have stopwatches. We have radar guns. They're all useful. They all have, the you know, their spaces. And they've all probably been very, very beneficial to certain amounts, maybe mass amounts of people or players over the line. But I said, we've got all these things to measure. And the one thing we still haven't found a way to measure in that realm are guts and nuts. And, you know, some people took that personal. That wasn't against Rap Soto, not K-Best, not Driveline, not Trackman, not all. I've used all of them. And I'm still using, still using them with the Rockies. It's just there comes a point in time where there's something else that we, you know, we need to take a look at. And I have a good friend that we we have these conversations, you know, periodically because we're involved in a business venture together. Um, David Eckstein. David Eckstein says, Clint, I don't know if I would even get drafted in today's game. And I said, well, you know, there's probably a really good argument that you wouldn't. They said, maybe. I still am that old romantic that believes some scout's going to find you somewhere and give you a chance. You might have to try out. You might not get any money. You might be a nine drafted free agent. However, we, we are eliminating a lot of, a lot of players earlier than ever before, just based on certain number values. I mean, that's, that's what we're doing. That's why one of the reasons these young players are hunting these numbers. It's at the big leagues. You know, we complained, we, we, we did complain about fly balls or strikeouts, walks, homers, but we're paying offensive players for OPS. 
Patrick OPS was in the air, correct? You, can we agree on that? Oh yeah, oh yeah. O, OPS was in the air. So what is a player going to do if he wants to get paid? Increase that OPS. <laughs> <laughs> and how are we going to increase that OPS? We're either going to look for something up in the zone, or we're going to increase some some launch angle. We're going to look for certain areas to hit. It, it's just we focus. We get more of what we focus on, and I believe that's true with teenagers. I believe that's true with young adults. That's true with players. It's true with managers, coaches, and general managers and owners and i think sometimes we just need to change the lens on what we value and how we value it to maybe help the game come back to some neutrality will it always be this way i think i think we're slowly seeing a um a re uh, I, i would say men when we make mistakes and the game was in a bad place probably five years ago and then a lot of analytics came in you know the spin off the mound velocity off the mound the launch angle Hard to hit balls up. Pitchers figure it out. They start pitching up. There's no more pitch down. Pitch away. Pitch up. Launch angle's hard to get to when it's up. It was working really well when it was down. But we we did some things which were pretty kind of, I want to say, very unique. First time things that happened. Revolutionary. And then after a few years, I think we realized, you know what? Maybe we don't need all of that. Because we as men, when we make mistakes, at least I, I overcorrect. If I make a mistake, I overcorrect it. And I think the game of baseball, we overcorrected in some areas. And now we're trying to find some marginality, putting some things back together. The hybrid situation that you and I had mentioned earlier to find you know some common ground for all of it. Um, do I think the product now, I love the rule changes with the exception of the ghost run. It, I, I, that one, I can't wrap my head around it. And I won't. I watched a no hitter on TV two weeks ago. And then in the tenth inning, they get to put a guy on second base. The Yankees get to put a guy on second base because that's just the rules. But but they have no hits through nine innings. There's zero, you know, zero chance of kind of winning the game. And now they're back in, and they end up winning the game. But as far as the the bigger basis, more athleticism is involved now. Speeds become a component again. You know, we thought eliminating the shift would help a lot of those left-handed hitters that were not very good with averages in the past or OPS. A lot of those guys, they're, they're the same or worse, even though we've, you know, we've redirected the shift. So that speaks to the player. It doesn't speak to the, you know, the, uh, the shifting. I love there's more action. I love it's moving quicker. I think it gives defenses a chance to react and play better defense. Um, the problem for me or the challenges for me is still what we've done in the bullpens now is since we were burning through pitchers, we've just added more pitchers to the, the context. So we can have now 13, 14-man bullpens. And the hard part for the one part I do laugh at, I just, it's not laugh at, I guess you say I laugh with when I got in the big leagues in 1978 for a full year, part-time in 77, we had a five man staff and we had five man bullpen. We had 10 pitchers navigate 162 game season and all the innings that come with that. Can you imagine? <laughs> and that's they, crazy. Patrick, they did it because they didn't know any different. And really now our players now, they don't know any difference. So if there's 14 out of them out in the, in the bullpen, you know, the coach, the pitching coach, everybody's got to try and figure it out how you keep them engaged, how you keep them somewhat sharp. And one of the ways is to have the, the starters pitch shorter times. And is that the way to go? That third time through the lineup has become kind of, you know, a thing now. I mean, it's a real thing now and, and rightfully so in some areas. But I'm just trying to learn to be a part of and be an advocate advocate for uh, the, the game in and of itself. 
you said earlier that there are certain things that you you believed back when you first started uh, managing coaching that you still would emphasize and believe today, even with all the analytics and technology. Like what what were what are a couple of those things that that no matter what, like you know that these are these work. You know, I was fortunate in Colorado. I had Dan O'Dowd as a general manager, and I don't know what if you watch the baseball network, MLB yeah. network. Dan O'Dowd's sharp guy, man. Learned a lot from him. In Pittsburgh, I worked for Neil Huntington. Dan for eight years and five as a hitting coach, probably two as a hitting coach before he I was a hitting coach before he got there. Probably 10, 11 years with Dan and then nine with Neil Huntington. Now, Neil Huntington was more analytically driven than Dan was because the analytics really weren't as involved uh, in the period of time that Dan and I were together. But with Neil from Amherst and hunting baseball, being in Cleveland, he had a tremendous, vast knowledge of the game, baseball background. He played in college, but he also had a mind for numbers, um, the analytical part of it, being very creative. And we would always talk about analytics, human analytics. We'd talk about roles and responsibilities. And, you know, there's been times when we would have those conversations that, you know, the conversation would get to that point where shouldn't pitchers be able to pitch in any inning? Shouldn't your bullpen be able to function in any inning? And I'd say, you know, I, in a vacuum, I think it sounds right. But I know from personal experience, it doesn't work that way. Men want to know roles and responsibilities. They may say they don't initially, but then if there's failure involved, they're going to come back and tell you, I need to know what I'm doing. I need to know what I'm pitching. More often than not, that, that's the argument that has been real. Hitters, when they come to the park, I think there's hitters that are your run producers, are the guys that are your difference makers in your lineup. Do they really need to come to the park and, and have to look at the lineup every day to find out where they're hitting? You know, it's one of the things, I mean, you watch lineups, unique lineups, um, 140, you know, there can be 140 and 148 games. It's a different lineup. Guys are hitting second, they're hitting eighth, they're hitting seventh, they're hitting sixth. Yeah, I get it. If you're going to do that, I, I think that the best way to if, put that program in place, you got to start that in your minor league system. So your players that come up to your system are somewhat learning it. They're, they're becoming aware of it. This is how we function. This is the way we do things. Uh, I think maybe Tampa has done a, a good job of that. But I'm also of the, the mindset and talking to players, and I've been fortunate to have a lot of good players, a couple of great, you know, a number of great players. They love knowing that they didn't have to look at the lineup. Or when they come to the lineup, they, they glance at it because they know they're hitting third. They know they're hitting fifth. They know they're hitting wherever it is. When you got to come and then first want to know if you're going to play and then want to know if where you're going to hit, Okay, and it's almost like if you're hitting in a different spot every day, you're kind of playing that mind game. Okay, what do I do differently? Anything. Maybe I don't do anything differently. And you have those conversations. But I do, do know that the more we can eliminate the distractions and have some, I believe, some players in roles with responsibilities, the ones that are going to be the difference makers, the ones that are going to put, put you in the best position to stay close or win the game, those are the people that you get let do the heavy lifting. And if they're doing the heavy lifting, you give them the benefit of some normalcy, some continuity. Um, those would be a couple, you know, the bullpen usage and the, and, and the lineup. Um, but initially, I'm going to tell you what absolutely warped my mind where I realized there was a whole other way to look at this game. Uh, and Neil and, and Dan Fox and Mike Fitzgerald are two big analysts with Dan Fox. And he created a program called the MIT, and I think they still use it in Pittsburgh. Danny's still there. 
And then Mike Fitzgerald got a job with the Diamondbacks. He's now their chief analyst. He runs that entire department. But we had those two guys, and Neil came down, and we're talking about the lineup going into a certain year. And they go, "What we'd like you to think about hitting Andrew McCutcheon second. And I was like, okay, why? And they go, well, why not? I go, well, I'll tell you. I said, because, and this is, this is the normal man's mentality of guys in my generation. The baddest dude on your team hits, hits third. That's just the way it is, right? I mean, it's, it's it, in some ways, it's caveman mentality, but it was the game, it was the way the game was taught for some years. The baddest dude on your team hits third. You know, Dusty Baker used to told me that. And then, you know, the baddest dude in the, in the league is the MVP just because, and, and I go, that's, he needs to hit 30. He's the best hitter on the team. They go, okay, here's, here's just the other side to look at, Clint. Last year, we played 162 games. You know, of the 162 games we played, you know, Andrew McCutcheon hit with two outs and nobody on, you know, 92 times. I can't remember the number, but I was like, what? Yeah, 92 times he started the inning off with nobody on base and two outs. Are we really leveraging our best hitter the best way? <laughs> Putting it in that many situations where it's really hard to score a run, as everybody knows, with nobody on base and two outs. Okay, explain, talk to me more, because it made sense. It's just common sense. And then they walked me through lineup variations, the important parts of the lineup, whether it be first, second, fourth, more so than third, you know, more so than, than some of the other ones and the reasoning behind it. And I go, okay, you know, you got me. You piqued my interest. This makes sense. We have to present it to the player. And as much as it can make sense sometimes, and I won't say it was Andrew in particular, but I've had players that just didn't make sense. It's not going to make sense. It's not the way they learned it. We all want to be open-minded. We all want to have a growth mindset in a perfect world. But in reality, sometimes some of your, some of your better managers, some of your better coaches, some of your better players have a fixed mindset. This is what they know. This is all they want to know. And they want to go out and do it that way. So that opened up my mind to the whole different ways of setting up even bullpens having guys ready for certain pockets of the lineup versus versus innings. There was different ways to look at playing the game now, managing the game and competing. Um, I do know that Bob was managing and probably still today that, you know, there's certain things managers. I know some managers that I think they get sheets and if they do X, you do Y, they do X, you do Y, they do X, you do Y. Um, and that's okay. If that's what you sign up for and you agree to. Uh, Neil would always tell me, he goes, Clint, we're going to give you the information. We're going to give you the tools to put in your tool belt. Once the game starts, I want you to manage the game. And then if there's something that we disagree on or want to talk about, we'll talk about it after the game or the next day. Because Neil wanted me to be in a position, he wanted to utilize and leverage, because that's the term we use a lot. He wanted to leverage my experience in the dugout, my experience with players, and my experience in feel of the game as it's getting played out. And he said, you know, when I trust, I trust that with you. When I don't trust it, I'll get another manager. But I, I have to honor it. I can't just tell you, you know, move X needs to be done when move Y is, is done by the other team, just because sometimes you'll have more information than I do. Yeah. And I mean, to, to Neil's credit, it's also like if he didn't, if he just told you to just follow the sheet, it's like, why not just have a robot in there? Right. And instead of just having somebody who has, you know, like yourself, all this experience, <laughs> but yeah, it's, I've seen that too. Even when I was in the minor leagues, it's like, yeah, you get these sheets and this is what you do. It's like, Jesus, is, is this even like coaching or managing at this point? I mean, we're just doing exactly what you're 
told to do literally, but I don't know. I, I guess I, I see, I, I don't know. I, some teams, I guess I've had some success with it. I think it would be hard for me to really want to, partake in, in doing that instead of just having some feel because you don't know what that player's emotions are maybe there's one player who's having a you know had a rough day yesterday or something happened in his personal life that you don't know about too and so that needs to be taken into consideration so there's definitely a, a ton of things um but that's kind of you know what i see from from the analytics and and technology and all that kind of stuff and i think you bring up some really good points though when it comes to the, the lineups and i a hundred percent agree with you. There's nothing worse as a hitter as if you have a bad game and then the next game you go over and look up to the look up at the lineup and your name's not there. Well, now the next time you get in there, you know, if you don't play well, there's going to be a chance that you're not in the lineup. Right. So it's like you get up there and you're now over three, the next game, that fourth, that bad, you're like, I, if I don't get a hit here, I know I'm not going to be in the, like, that's, that's not good either. I see that happen a lot more at the college level than I do anywhere else because it's that win have to win now mentality. Um, I don't know. I know you haven't coached in college, but how would you go about now that I'm, just, I'm actually thinking about this? How would you go about coaching in college, knowing what you know and, and, and the experience that you've had um, just from a not recruiting necessarily standpoint, but just from a, a coaching day to day standpoint? I, I still believe at any level that your best coaching opportunity is to develop a personal relationship with each and every player. That's hard. It takes time, but truly it's a separator and it's a forced multiplier. When the player knows you care about them holistically, that the player knows that you you've earned their trust because, you know, back in the day, things were different. You know, I, Whitey Herzog was my first big league manager. I'm not going to not trust Whitey. I trust Whitey. Whatever Whitey tells me to do, I'm going to do. But now you get players, you know, six, 50 years later, they don't know you. They may not trust you. You got to earn their trust, basically. So number one, I'm going to try and earn their trust. And that's going to take time. And it's going to take amount of time. Different for each player. Some players trust sooner than others. Some, it takes a long time to trust. You don't know what their backgrounds are. You don't know what they've been through. And you're not selling men something. You're developing a relationship where they can look at you and know, you know, the one thing I'm going to get from Clint, he's going to be consistent. He's going to be, you know, dependable and reliable and i know he's got the best interest for the team out it may affect me personally once in a while so you, you build trust you earn their trust the second thing i think you need to show them is that you care about them not just on the field he's a middle infielder with one step quickness he's got a barrel bat there's no pop there he can get you a base hit the walk really never plays you know you fractionalize them down to they're just another statistic so you get to know him. what does he like to do away from the park what type of childhood did he have? Was his dad a coach? Is his dad in his life? How important a role is mom, sisters, all of that. So you show him you care about. Him. And then the third thing I think you'll do, you, you get the chance to do once they trust you, is you can prove to them you can coach them up and make them better. But you know this, Patrick, as well as anybody. You will never allow somebody to coach you until you trust them. And I've been that guy where I've listened to some managers. I nod my head, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. And inside I'm saying, I can't wait for him to shut up so I can get out of this office. <laughs> and then I've probably been the manager talking and the player's doing it to me. I can't wait till he shuts up and I get out of this office. So I believe in earning their trust. I believe in showing them that we care about them. And I believe once that opportunity presents itself through the trust and the care, we will show them and prove to them that we can coach them up and help them just be a better player or the best version of Patrick. 
the best version of Clint, whatever that means in the role that you have on the team. And that role can change. Here's what you get right now. You know, the game and life is about earning things. And then you go about, yes, it is dependent upon play, but there might be something outside of player performance that puts you in a different position, an injury, uh, a failed test in college, you know, bad behavior, whatever it is. So be prepared to be the next man up and not be the guy that's whining and moaning in the background because of X, Y, and Z, but just keep working because opportunities still present themselves all over the game of sport at every level. How, how, often, how often would you let players know where they stood um, on your team? As often as I felt when they got that look in their eye that they didn't know. Or I would share with them, how are you feeling? What are you thinking? And they might go, well, you know, my role's diminished. I'm not playing as much. What do I, I, one of the pivotal points in my coaching journey actually came upon in Pittsburgh when I started calling players in and asking them what they thought my expectations were of them. And I didn't do it. All the years I managed in Colorado, I didn't do it as a hitting coach in Texas. The year we went to the World Series. But some things that happened in my personal life and in the team that I thought, you know what? Expectations in life are usually resentments that are waiting to happen. And I, what I mean by that is I've, I know I've had pl- expectations put on me. You talked about some earlier. Cover Sports Illustrated, next year's phenom. A lot of people didn't know me. A lot of people didn't know who I was or what I was. But when you put expectations on somebody that you don't know, you haven't spent the time in finding out who they are, what they are, and how they are. And then you just form expectations that they need to meet. If they don't meet them, you're going to be discouraged and disappointed in them. How fair is that really at the end of the day? Hmm. That's an unfair just. It's terrible. But I'm going to tell you, I probably did it. And I know I had coaches do it to me. So that... That certain year, I started asking my players, and the answers I was getting was amazing. You know, almost 90% of them were, were number-oriented. I need to win 15. I need to save 30. I need to win a gold glove, all-star, hit 20, drive in 100, 40 doubles, 100 runs. And I boiled it down with each one of them. And, you know, you can say it in a team meeting, but I think it's more. There's sometimes things need to be said one-on-one. I said, look, I want you to be the best person you can be at home before you get to this clubhouse. Wife, girlfriend, kids friends, whatever it is, be the best person you can be at home. When you get to this clubhouse, be the best teammate you can be today. Prepare to help us win a game today, whatever your role is today. The name on the front, play for the name on the front. That's our city. That's our team. That's who we represent. That name on the back, not every team has one, but a lot of do. That's where you're from. Honor that name. All right. Take that name on the field tonight and play for them as well. And then son, just play the game. Go play the game. Don't work the game. Don't grind the game. Just go play the game. Go pitch the game. I had like four things I would share with them. Those are my expectations. And I actually had one player share with me the most galvanizing response I got back. I got back so many good ones because they were trying to give me answers they thought I wanted. But one player actually said it. He goes, are you kidding me? That's what you want. And I go, that's all I want. Because I really believe if you'll take care of those, and it's going to be hard just to take care of those, the numbers are going to come. They're going to happen, whatever role you're in. And he goes, Clint, I know I can do those. I might do them some better than some days. And I can do those. He goes, all that other stuff I told you, that's what I was hoping I could do because I thought that's what you wanted to hear. Wow. Wow. Crazy. 
Wow. And that, I mean, that advice or not, what you told them, I think is, that's definitely some wisdom on your part, because I'm sure you understand if they're focusing on the team, they're focused on being a good, you know, husband at home, family man, all these other things are, they're focused on something bigger than themselves. They're not thinking about themselves and their own stats and whatnot. So that just takes a weight off their shoulders and that allows them to just play freely, which, which means that their numbers are now actually going to be better than if if they were to just focus on getting their numbers up themselves and just focusing on themselves. So that's very wise of, of you to do that. Um, it's the best of both worlds. But that's very interesting to hear that a couple of those guys, grown men, grown men who, you know, you're in the major leagues and they're, they're telling you something just because they think you want to hear it as another grown man, which is crazy to think about. Well, there's a lot of craziness out there. There's a lot of misdirected energy and anxiety um, because there's a lot at stake in their mind. And you try and help them through a thing that I would, you know, I, I call sweat equity, human capital, <laughs> professional maturity. You know, those are terms. Common sense isn't really common in, in today's world and in to get today's game sometimes. And I'm just trying to eliminate distractions for them, number one, and find a way to best give them freedom just to go play. Good stuff. I tell you what, though, I do I do have to ask you about your own playing days because I, I know I mentioned, you know, you were on the cover of Sports Illustrated, which I didn't know about until I started researching more about you. And then I started looking, digging a little bit deeper. And your age 19 season in AAA is, I mean, those are video game numbers at 19 years old. I mean, you had 96 walks to 61 strikeouts. I mean, talk about controlling the strike zone. Plus, you had 16 bombs. Plus, you had 328. And that was at 19 in AAA. Uh, what I don't want to phrase it as like what happened, but what happened? Because you, I mean, those are <laughs> crazy numbers. <laughs> well, I think no, it is a great question. It's part of my story now, um, and it, I I don't blame anybody. I, I I say you know it's kind of what happened in my life. A lot of expectations. Um, and there were some numbers behind the reasoning for the expectations. Not only there, but then that winter I went and played in Venezuela and hit 18 homers in 54 games and drove in like more RBIs and games played and hit over 300 and just did some crazy numerical things again. So it was like a full year of crazy offensive numbers. And then the hype that came with that coming into spring training and I was playing the outfield, and then uh, we traded John Mayberry. I tried to learn first base with two weeks to go in the big league season. Never played first base in my life, so I'm going to go in a big league season with a hype, expectations, learning a new position. That all sped up on me. Um, I think for whatever reason, the kid that just went out and played for all the years, the kid that kid started thinking about playing and what he needed to do to play well and how – this is now the big leagues. You've watched these guys on TV. It's a different deal, and it wasn't a different deal. Actually, that kid got lost along, along the way. I found him later on in life, later in my career. A lot of it lapsed. A lot of it didn't happen. And in many people's eyes, again, expectations. Now I'm a failure. I go from high expectations to being a failure. But what I learned is, you know, life's not fair. My dad was so instrumental in this. My dad's still alive. He's 90 years old. 
I, my biggest fan. My mom, my mom and I are my biggest fans through my playing career. But my dad would say, Clinton, life's not fair. None of this. You expect fair? And the, the, the quote I took, the quote I made, I heard somewhere so long, but I share from my dad and I use it with my players all the time. The only thing fair in life is a ball hit between first and third. That's it. That's it. <laughs> that's, that's, all, that's fair. That's all that's going to be fair. And I learned life lessons through all that, learning how to redirect my energy, my attention, learn, relearn my swing, become versatile in more positions. It went from right field to first base, then it went to left field, then it went to third base, then it went to catcher. And the last piece, the catcher piece, probably put me in position to see in the game for, uh, from a whole new vantage point. After all the years I played it, I got to watch it from that vantage point, which opened up a whole bunch of other avenues for me. Um, and actually piqued my interest into potentially coaching at some point in time, let alone managing was never on the board, but it became a part of what I did. But I think it, just to shrink it down, I tried to make everybody happy. I became a people pleaser. I wanted everybody to like my swing. Everybody liked the way I played. Everybody liked my attitude. Before you know it, when you do that, you wear yourself out, number one. But instead of making everybody happy, you usually end up pissing a lot of people off. And when I'd answer questions, I'd give responses. And before you know it, you're getting asked so many questions and you're given so many responses. Now you sound like a know-it-all. And if nobody would ask me questions, I wouldn't have any answers. <laughs> it just, it, it, it kind of just kept cycling. And, and then for me personally, and I share this with you, because if you did your research, you know, then I started drinking. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I got 24 years sober. Um, that did not help. You know, then I would numb my situation or my pain or my anguish or my anxiety or my disappointment or frustration. I'd numb that at night. And the problem was, you, it was you started, you started drinking heavily because of the struggles when you, as a player. I think it was one of the reasons that I gravitated to alcohol. Absolutely. Um, it would numb me for three or four hours where I, okay, I didn't get it done on the field. I'll get it done off the field. Real, another smart mentality, right? Another <laughs> great game plan. Um, but I've learned so many lessons through all the challenges, all the ups, all the downs, all the sideways. And I think it put me in the position that I was kind of handpicked to be by Dan O'Dowd first as a manager. I was a hitting coach first, and that was such a good fit. I had that, I just, I was fortunate to work with hitters that were way better than me, but somehow, some way, I developed a relationship where they trusted me. And then the managing part opened up, and then I went back to Texas and was a hitting coach, you know, after I'd not been one for nine years and loved every minute of it. I got to kind of refine myself as a hitting coach, and then the pirate opportunity opened up, and I managed for nine more years. So, I look back at it this way. I don't know what people measure, but when I want to at least feel like I gave it everything I had and I gave the people I worked for and with everything I had, I don't know how easy it is to manage in two cities for 17 years and never win a World Series, but be kept at one for eight, one for nine, unless you're not doing some things that they found value in. Mm -hmm. Well, the more I think about it as you're, telling you're talking about your story as a player it's it's honestly in a sense a good thing that it didn't work out because you're probably not the manager that you became had you not gone through those struggles as a player and you're not sitting down with your players one-on-one -on -one and telling them hey these are the expectations and then have it has nothing to do with them you know performing on the field because of what you went through so I think it it, it does come full circle which I'm sure it's a bummer that you had to go through that as a player and the drinking and everything but I think you probably were able to impact way more people because of that. 
Um, I, I do want to ask you just as one last topic as being a hitting coach, it's so difficult. It's incredibly hard. Um, what are some of the things, what are some of the pieces of advice that you have to uh, hitting coaches like myself out there with your experience, not just as a hitting coach, but as a manager too? It, it starts with building that relationship and earning the trust of the player. Because what you see nowadays, it's probably, it's more challenging now than when I was because every player usually goes home. And I, I use this term as, as, a, as a good term, a guru, a hitting coach. And when you add up the years of experience, how many hitting coaches have they had by the time they get to the big leagues? If they've gone through high school and showcase ball or travel ball and, and college and minor league ball, my gosh. So are they really authentically, do they know their own selves and their own swings or is there the combination, a culmination of everybody else's input of what they think is best for them? Or do they know what's best for themselves? I try and help the player identify his strengths in his areas of improvement, but we focus on strengths. What kind of hitter are you? What kind of person are you? What kind of guy are you in the box? How do you prepare? What, how do you best learn? Is it kinetically? Is it visually? Is it through audio? What do you, is it touch and feel for you? Do you need to feel it? We have the conversations along the way. And then we hit, and with every hitter I've ever had, I would watch them hit for a period of time and not offer them one tip or technique unless they asked me something. And I would let them know that at a time. You're going to hit for a while, kid, and I'm just watching. I'm watching, I'm taking notes, I'm just gaining information. I'm going to see what, what looks right to me. We'll share it down the road. I want to be a GPS system. I don't want to be the Wizard of Oz. I'm not going to have all the answers. I may suggest things that you might try and you have plenty that's jacked up. It doesn't feel right. Let's, we'll get rid of it. We'll get rid of it. We'll go another angle. Because I would always go, no, I got a tool belt full of stuff here, brother. And I know there's a key for you that hopefully we can build a relationship where I can just help you be the best hitter that you can be. But the first thing that, that relationship is number one. Number two, how many times do you see the, the, the hitter at any level? He has his at bat. He comes back. He goes to his hitting guy and usually asks, you know, what did I do wrong? What happened? Well, after a while, I wasn't very smart. You know, I would try and say, well, your backside, oh, your front side energy. I had all these great hitting terms to come up with. Your head left the ball. And then finally I said, you know what? This is all, this is dirt. This is a waste of time. Because then I'd go back and watch the video. And for all the times there was a swing flaw, there were more times it just wasn't a good pitch to hit. <laughs> so the first thing I share with the hitters, did you get a good pitch to hit, son? Well, no, but uh, no, no, there's no but. Yeah. It's hard enough to work on a swing that's going to work within that strike zone. Yeah. You go out the strike zone, I'm out. Right, right. <laughs> we'll and call and Yogi after Berra. that, it's where you on time. <laughs> <laughs> we'll call Yogi Berra. We'll call Manny Sanguin. We'll call some of the best bad ball hitters in the game. Have a conversation with those guys. I, I, I don't have that. <laughs> I don't have it. But, but then the second one became, I've never had a hitter, and I just shared this with our, our group and instructionally with Rockies. All our first-year players that were drafted in 2023, they were there. I'm not their hitting coach. I'm a special assistant to the general manager. I share hitting thoughts, things I've learned, things I share. And I just challenge each group that comes in. I go, okay, the, you, you guys, you have the first – you have the chance to be the first – somebody here can be the first player I've ever had, ever coached, ever watched, that can come with me and say, look, I'm all screwed up. I'm down too early. I'm so – my, I'm so on time. I'm just down too early. I said, because all I hear out of hitters is what? I'm late. Mm -hmm. I'm late. I'm late. Or 
The coaches don't know you're late. Well, they are, and they know they are. So why not get a good pitch to hit? And why not put us in a position where we're down early enough that we can actually recognize the pitch with a calm body and a calm head, and we're not what I call collision hitting, rushing to hit the ball. We're in a hurry to hit because what? We want to hit. We want a number. We want to see ball flight. The third thing I share with them is however long you watch the ball, watch it one, one count longer. <laughs> Just count it one count longer. Actually try and leave your head at your point of impact where you make impact with the ball, leave it there for, I used to use the Polaroid camera for young kids way back in the day. I'd, take, I'd make them take their swing, they'd hit the ball, and then I'd take a picture of them. The swing would be finished, <laughs> their head would still be down. And I'd say, take this with you, show mom and dad, because when you get in that first slump, I guarantee you, if they took a picture, you're, they're going to see this. Mm -hmm. So it's those three little templates early, and then you develop, you know, you talk about spin, you can talk about location, you can talk about sequencing from the pitcher and probabilities, but first it's just putting some anchors down to put them in a position to get their best swing off. Mm. So good, man. So good. It's obvious you've been doing this for a while. It's uh, yeah, it's great stuff. Last very last question I have for you. Uh most impressive from a physical talent, just physical talent, most impressive player you've ever coached? Because I have a name in the back of my mind who I think you're going to say, but I just I don't want to put it out there. To, I just want I'm curious to hear what you say. You know that's a that's a crazy good question, and depending on what day you ask me, it could be like four different guys. Yeah, it truly really could, because I've got one player I've just spent more time with than any of the others, and that's Todd Helton. However, mm. I've got two players I work with. For a number of years, one's Larry Walker. He's in the Hall of Fame. One year, I worked with Vladimir Guerrero. He's in the Hall of Fame. But I'll say the one year that I worked with Josh Hamilton in Texas in 2010 may have been the most physically imposing drinking water from a fire hose as from a, as a coach standpoint. Watching a kid perform the craziest thing about that year, he won the MVP. We spent two months floundering as a club he spent two months spinning his wheels offensively you know he came from tampa high expectations he dealt with his own personal demons and challenges he had a tremendous first half in 09 and the second half it was like a balloon the air came out of it and he's trying to refine himself john daniels who's another general manager i worked for which gave me great liberty and freedom i learned a lot from john but he wanted he wanted me to try and develop a relationship with josh he maybe never had from a coaching perspective and a personal respective because we had a lot of commonality, you know, with the, uh, with the addiction. Well, spring, I'm trying to develop a relationship and everything's cool except for Josh is sold on this leg kick. Josh is going to leg kick. I said, that's great. Helton leg kick, you know, Cal Ripken Jr. Leg kick. Matter of fact, Cal Ripken Jr. There was about a 10 year span where he had a different stance every year. Yeah. So, okay. You like the leg kick? You got the leg kick. No problem. But every third or fourth day, he'd come back in the cage and go, you know, my leg kick, my damn leg kick. And I'd say, okay, let's get rid of it. Well, I can't get rid of it. The leg kick generates my power. We had this ongoing conversation where I said, no, your leg kick doesn't generate your power. You know, you're pushed into the ground, the force in the ground, the turning of your hips, you swing, you generate power through the force of your swing. You're, it all kinetically works. Your hands, your, your arms, your torso, your hips. Well, for two months, He's at two, I don't know, 250, 260. He's got six, seven, eight home runs. It's 24 RB. It's very generic for him, very vanilla. And Ron Washington brings me in the office, who 
backstory. Ron was my third base coach in, in the Mets organization when I was managing. So we already had a bond, and he's telling me about Josh Hamilton. We don't get Josh going. This team ain't going. Rah, 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 rah. I said, I hear you 100%. You need to do something. I said, do I have freedom to do what I think I need to do? Yeah, Clint, go get it done. I said, well, Josh comes in today and asks. It was June 1st. We're in Chicago. And you can, you can look up the numbers. And I, because I've told this story a number of times, and Josh would back it up. The numbers were pedestrian. He comes in, he goes, I'm tired of this. What do you think I ought to do? I said, The same thing I, I've shared with you for over two months. I said, Can a lake? Can't, can't. Just kill the lake kick. I can't do that in the middle of the season. I said, Why not? You want more of this? We need you to go. I can't change my stance. I, if anybody can, you can. Anyway, I got into buying a triangle. We go to the cage that day. We spent an hour in the cage. Johnny Naren, who was his, another guy that he knew from his background, um, Johnny, Josh, and I, we hit for an hour. No leg kick. Basically, he went to the launch position, put his foot down on the ball of his foot, and all he did was transfer weight back with a hand pump and then get his swing off. So in the cage, obviously, a lot of things work well in the cage, right? Controlled yeah. environment. Oh, yeah. there's, there's flips. There's tees. There's no velocity. Even if I'm throwing, there's no velocity. It's all great. We go out to the field early. We hit for 35, 40 minutes. I got to go get two other guys to hit because he's just tired from swinging, but he wants to keep it. He wants to feel it. He's hitting balls as far, if not farther, than he ever has. So now he's starting buying to the, the power thing. Okay, it's not going to cost me power. Well, as you know, Patrick, as a coach, the, the, the game starts, Burley's on the mound, it's second and third, or base is loaded, one out, and he pops the first ball up. He didn't drive it around. Mm. Right, 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 right. No leg kick. Second at bat, same thing, leaves a bunch of base runners out. Right, 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 right. And he finally says, tells John, you go tell that old man down there, I'm done with this. I'm, it's over. I <laughs> and Johnny, I could hear Josh mumbling. I wanted to go down and say, dude, yeah, you, you, you wasted two at bats. I've watched you waste 112 of them already, two months in the season, but but those two are on me. I'm 0 for 2. Johnny goes, that man's worked with you all day, and he believes in you, and he believes in it, and you're going to can it after two at bat. You go tell him. I ain't telling him. So I hear see Josh coming, and I'm thinking, okay, he's going to let me have it. He walks right by me. He goes downstairs, and he mumbles, looks at video, whatever, but he comes back out. Before the game's over, I think he got three or four hits. I think he hit a home or drove in like four or five runs. I think he got four hits that night. It's June 1st. He got 48 hits in the month of June or 49 hits in the month of June. And if you'll look at those numbers where they ended up by the end of the year, it's incredible what he was able to do on a ball field in a batter's box. That's just the batter's box. So better to watch him run the bases and play outfield defense. Like he did that year. My dad came into Texas and we had like a 12 game homestand. And my dad to this day will tell you his favorite player is Mickey Mantle. But he goes, this is the first time in my life watching that boy play for you. I just watched Mickey Mantle play baseball again for 12 days. Wow. Wow. That's, that's crazy. Is I that what, I with the run he went on starting in June for the rest of the season, I mean, I can't. I, I don't know if there's the. I can. I can't think of another hitting coach who could probably like be as responsible for the success of. Not. I want to say I'm not going to obviously like not give him credit, but I mean like clearly those changes were needed and propelled him to uh, just absurd production. And I mean, I can't even imagine from like a money standpoint, how much money you probably helped him make from, from oh. that. This changes. It all starts with a relationship. Yeah. 
you know, he finally trusted me to commit to something that he was a little uncomfortable with and see it through and give it some time. Not initially, but cooler head settled. He stayed with it. And then as we all, as any hitting coach always wants, when you try something or you change something, you're looking for, they need a nugget right away. Right. Something did happen sooner than later for their buy-in. Well, after that, it was just crazy. And of course, then his teammates, dude, no leg kick. What, what happened to the leg kick? I ain't doing no leg kick. I'm done with the leg kick. You know, all right. of it, just the whole evolution. And we giggled because, you know, he had to do the hitting. I had a thought and I had a belief and it transferred into his thought and his belief, but that's what coaching is all about, right? Mm -hmm. It's, mm -hmm. it's taking the person, getting them from point A to B in a different type of, of mode of transportation or a different thought that they couldn't do on their own. Yeah. And on his own, he wasn't going to do it, but I've been blessed with enough people that taught me there's certain ways to get your point across. And usually it comes best with making it that other person's point. And many times I would go to Josh, and go, what do you think? And I go, you know, why don't we? No, you're a smart kid. You'll figure it out. And I'd walk away. Mm. And then, you know, three or four days, he goes, what do you got? You've been seeing, you know, I'm so close. I, I go, yeah, you know, I, I watched a lot of video last night. And if we, never mind, dude, you're right. You're close. You're going to blow it open tonight. And I'd walk away. And finally got to that point where I think that June 1st, he finally was tired all day. He goes, what do you got? Are you holding back on me? I said, nah, I'm not really holding back. It's the same thing I've always thought. I, have, I haven't changed. Quint, appreciate you coming on today, man. You're you're a, you're a stud. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate you. Thanks for the opportunity. And I know that when I see when I see you and, and you share something, that if I got a different thought or something like this, I'm going to DM you because you're a good man. You're doing a good job, and we're both out to do the same thing. We're out to grow. I, I agree. I look forward to continue talking some baseball down the road, man. Awesome, buddy. Thank you.